All right, Romans chapter 15 this morning. <clears throat> We've come to the 15th chapter in our study in Romans, and we're continuing in this section that deals with Christian liberty. Paul spends a chapter and a half dealing with this topic, starting with the beginning of chapter 14, and with this discussion concerning things in a believer's life where the Bible does not give specific or direct clear instruction on. Sometimes we refer to these as gray areas. There's probably a lot of different ways that we can refer to these things. Uh, but we talk about that because there's no clear black and white teaching on it. We're left through our own study of the Word to come up with our own convictions to determine where what we feel is the course of action that is most pleasing to God, most glorifying to Him. And we've emphasized throughout this section that when we're talking about this section, we're talking about this subject, we're not talking about sins. We're not talking about taking what God has clearly forbidden and claiming that it is liberty. Therefore, don't judge me, right? We talk about, we've talked about how we shouldn't judge our brother, but when we're talking about sins, there is direct, there is confrontation, there is, there is matters that we should deal with one another in. What God has clearly laid down in Scripture is not open for us to contradict. It's not open for us to disobey. It's important to point out as well that we're also not talking about clear doctrinal matters here, saying that where the Bible clearly teaches something that, well, it doesn't matter if we get it right or wrong. When the Bible is clear on something where God has directly addressed something, we need to be faithful to that teaching. But in the not-so-clear areas, where we are left to follow our own conscience, we are left to follow our own convictions, Paul lays out in these chapters the guidelines that we're to follow here. He doesn't so much concern himself with who is right or wrong, and he instructs us on how we are to behave towards each other in these matters, although he does touch on that. We do clearly see in here that it's the stronger believer that does have the right view on what we're talking about here. But his main point in this is this. When my convictions have led me to strive to honor God by doing one thing, and yours have led you to strive to honor Him by doing something else, how do we function together? As the stronger brother, the brother who believes that there is liberty in this matter, where there is more freedom in this matter, it is my job to show the weaker brother, or is it, sorry, Is it my job to show the weaker brother where the flaws in his argument are? Where's the intention of fixing him? No, that's not my job. Is it the stronger brother's job to get the weaker brother to take part in that activity, even though it might violate his conscience? Again, no, that's not the stronger brother's job. What is the stronger brother's job? Verse 1 of chapter 14, we saw that he was to accept him without passing judgment on his opinions. Verses 3 and 10 showed us that we are not to regard him with contempt. Verse 13, don't put a stumbling block in his way. Verse 15, do not hurt or destroy him for whom Christ died. Verse 18, do do what is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verses 19 and 20, don't tear down the work of God, but edify or build your brother up. Verses 21 and 22, take joy in the liberty that you have, but be willing to give it up for the sake of your brother. There are fewer things that people like less than having to give up their freedoms. Things that they have a right to do, but then somebody tells them, 
but you shouldn't do that. And that really grates on us. But that's exactly what Paul is calling for here, because even though we may have liberty to do something, that doesn't always mean that it is the right thing for us to do. The example that Paul is using here, and that what really covers this section, has to do with eating and drinking. And this is really based on the Jewish and Gentile mixture of people within the church at Rome. Even though Paul stated that all foods are to be considered clean, that they are good to eat, and we looked at passages in 1 Timothy and in Mark's Gospel that talk about that as well. But even though food and drink do not defile you, there would have been some, especially of the Jewish background, that would not have been comfortable eating and drinking certain things. Things that they had spent their entire lives avoiding because they would have been prohibited in the Mosaic Law. And we looked a couple weeks ago back in in the uh, book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, where, where even Peter had to be told in, in a vision that these things are clean. Get, rise, kill, and eat. So when these Jews and Gentile believers got together, the Gentile believers wouldn't have had a problem chowing down on a ham sandwich. The Jewish believers might have had a huge problem with that. So did the Gentile brother have to eat a ham sandwich? Not at all. He might have had the liberty to do it, but in the face of causing his brother, whose convictions were different than him on the matter, to stumble, he didn't have to eat that ham sandwich. He could easily forego that for the sake of his brother. And that's what Paul's been talking about here so far. But that's the responsibility that the stronger brother has. What about the weaker brother? What responsibility does he have? It may seem as though this gives all the power, and I'll put power in quotation marks because that's often how we think of it, gives all the power to the weaker brother and that they can make someone become just like them with the same restrictions on whatever it is that I do. And in that case, it seems as though I no longer actually have any liberty. Well, we need to remember this about liberty. It means that we are free to do something, but it also means that we are free not to do that thing. If liberty is something that I always have to take, if there's a ham sandwich on the table and, oh, the ham sandwich is there and I have liberty to eat it, so I have to eat it, then I'm no longer really free, right? Now I'm enslaved to that ham sandwich, and that's not what real liberty is. I am free to eat it or not to eat it. The stronger defers to the weaker out of love. And we'll get into that a little bit more today. But love is the overriding attitude that we are to have towards one another in the church. I am not merely looking out for me. I know how to do that well, right? I know how to look out for myself well. That's always my first go-to reaction, right? What, what do I want to do? That's just instantly where our minds go. But in love, I am looking out for you. I am to put you ahead of me. Now, does that apply only to the stronger brother? Where does that leave the weaker brother in this case? He is to love the stronger brother as well. That's why the weaker isn't without responsibility here. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14, we saw that he is not to judge his stronger brother because God has accepted him. In verse 10, he is not to judge because we give an account to God, not to each other. The weaker brother's job is not to judge his stronger brother. Verse 23 says that the weaker brother is not to violate his own conscience because that would be sin. If I am strong in an area, which, again, strength is 
really maturity. It's understanding that we have more maturity, that we have freedom in something. But if I am strong in that area, I shouldn't hold the weaker brother in contempt. But if I'm the weaker brother, then I shouldn't be judging one whom God has accepted. That's for God to decide. Whether I am weak or strong, whatever it is that I do, I do to glorify God. That was the point of what he said in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 14. We are all the servants of God, and as we function together to serve him, to bring glory to him, we are to function in love, deferring to one another, not hindering one another. But being unified in what we do, no matter what our convictions, whatever our backgrounds are, we are to be unified in our goals. And that is where Paul is going here in chapter 15. Now, again, we've already seen throughout Romans, we've seen this several times, that the two main groups that Paul is dealing with here are Jews and Gentiles, right? There was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. And throughout the letters, uh, in the first 14 chapters, he's gone back and forth talking to Jews in certain instances and Gentiles in certain instances. In the early church, it was these two groups that were coming together and had a difficult time accepting one another and functioning together because for so long they had been completely disassociated from one another. Now, salvation has been offered to the Gentiles. That was one of the main points that we saw when we were back in chapter 11. And the two groups are now called to function in one body, in the body of Christ. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter of Ephesians. In our study of Romans, we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2 several times. We looked at the first verses, really the first ten verses, right, where we see there that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith as the gift of God in order that we may walk in the works that God has prepared for us. And that covers really those first ten verses of Ephesians 2, showing how anyone who is saved comes to that salvation, that same way. That is true of anyone who's saved. Now after that, Paul goes into a discussion concerning Jews and Gentiles here. And in verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about the Gentiles being previously excluded from the Jews, having no hope and excluded by God. They were not the focus of God's plan of salvation. That was reserved for Israel. And we saw that in our discussion of Romans chapter 11. That God had turned his attention away, he has turned his attention away from Israel and toward uh, the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Thus offering salvation to the Gentiles. But look at verse 13 of of Ephesians chapter 2. See the result of that. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And those are the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. See, now there is unity between even Jew and Gentile. Salvation has come to both Jew and Gentile alike, making them one in the body of Christ. 
Now, this doesn't mean that there's no distinction at all between Jew and Gentile, but in God's plan of salvation, when it comes to salvation, there's no difference. Jew and Gentile are saved the same way. Both placed into the body of Christ by grace through faith in the gospel. Now it is under this new arrangement that the church must function, coming from different backgrounds, different cultures, but functioning together. No matter where we came from, we are all tasked with one thing, to glorify and honor God. And as a church, we are to do it together. That's what we're here for. Being able to put aside the differences we may have in our convictions and functioning together in unity. So come back with me, come back with me to Romans chapter 15, where we see this unity being the foundation for what Paul is going to talk about as we function together in love towards one another. So look at verse 1, Romans 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. So continuing on from his topic in chapter 14, he continues his comments towards the stronger or the more mature believers, the ones with more flexibility and therefore with more responsibility. Paul understood liberty, right? He throws himself in this group. We who are strong, he throws himself in that group because he includes himself with the strong. And for most issues, he probably was strong because he obviously had inspiration from the Lord in, many of the, in everything that he wrote here. But what are the strong to do? The stronger to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So it's the same, really, as what we've seen at the end of chapter 14. To bear or carry their weakness is to defer to them, to willingly give up our liberty. Again, this is only possible for someone who's strong. Right? We've already seen that the weak can't carry the strong. It doesn't work both ways in that sense, because they can't give in or to, to defer to the strong on these issues. And why can't they? Because that would be a violation of their conscience, their convictions. They would violate that. And to them, that would be sin, to do something that would violate their own conscience. They believe that what they're doing is glorifying to God, and if they go against that just because of peer pressure or because somebody says, nah, just do it anyway, that would violate their conscience and be sin to them. So that's why the strong have the greater burden here. And it's up to you who are strong to carry the burden of the weak, and it doesn't go the other way. What's the real issue here? He says, and not please ourselves. I shouldn't be focused on pleasing myself. I shouldn't be focused on making me happy. I can do what is pleasing to you. You may struggle with something that I don't struggle with. Let me help you by bearing your burden. It's really a very simple concept that he brings up here. Don't focus on me. Focus on you. There. That's, that's the concept. Now, it's a simple concept, but as we find out in, find in Scripture, it's not always an easy concept, right? Simple doesn't equal easy, necessarily. Why? Because I like me an awful lot. An awful lot. And I really want to be pleased in the things that I do. Not to mention, this is completely backwards from what the world around us would tell us, right? At every turn, the world is telling us exactly opposite of what we're seeing here. You're worth it. You deserve happiness. Look out for yourself first. Don't try to make everybody else happy. Look out for your own happiness first. 
That's what the world tells us at every turn. And that's their focus. And what it would, uh, that's what it would say we should spend our time doing, but that's not how we are to function together in the church. Turn back over to the book of Ephesians with me again, chapter 4 this time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ephesians, we've talked about this before. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul presents a picture of what's true of the believer, how we've been called to salvation, what God has done for us, and how he has blessed us and saved us and built his church. That's what we see in those first three chapters. But then you come to chapter 4, and starting in chapter 4, he starts to present how we are to live. He says in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He just told them how they've been called. Now, based on all that he told them in those first three chapters, this is how you walk. And look what he says in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. All of these things are how we are to act towards one another. Towards each other in the church. With the main goal then being presented there in verse 3 where he says, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, there's this idea of unity again. The unity that is ours in the church as we function together. That's where we should all be on the same page in unity. And we cannot have this unity if everyone is looking to please himself or herself first, right? It just it doesn't work that way. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, another passage where Paul talks about liberty and the things that are ours. And we've looked at this passage over the last few weeks. Look, at, look first at verse 23, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but that of his neighbor. Once again, don't look out for yourselves. Looking, look out for others. Look out for our neighbors. He then goes on to talk about the same thing that Paul's talking, or this is Paul again, but the same thing that Paul's talking about in Romans. He talks about food and what we are to do in light of one who has a weaker conscience in certain areas, just like we're talking about in Romans 14. But look down at verse 32. He says down there, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And you see Paul's attitude here, that he did not just seek after his own profit, but the profit of others. Pleasing all men, doing what is best for them. And you see where he places his priority. He's deferring to others in this case, all men in all things. Now, Paul here is talking about the gospel. When he talks about pleasing others, he's not saying, oh, I don't say anything that would offend them. The gospel offends. That's not what he's saying. When you, get to, when you go over to Galatians uh, chapter 1, he talks about not being a man pleaser. That's not what we're talking about here, that kind of pleasing. We're talking about deferring to our brothers. We don't like to give up liberty. Why? Because again, it's not what I want to do. It's not pleasing to me. It doesn't get me what I want. But what's Paul's point? 
I need to stop focusing on me. Note again that Paul's including himself in this group here. My Christian life is not about me. It's about serving God. It's about serving others. Where am I? I'm last on that list. I don't know if there was an old song that I learned as a kid. Um, I'm not going to sing it. Nobody wants me to sing it. But it was about joy. Jesus and others in you, right? And the whole point of that was that's the order of the list. Put Jesus first, others, and then you come last in the list. And that brings you joy. Well, I mean, I'm not saying you pull that directly out of Scripture, but that's the idea, right? Jesus first, others, and then yourself at the last of the list. And again, this is all contrary to the world, right? This is not what the world would tell us. But that doesn't surprise us, considering the fact that in this section, how did Paul start this off? Back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we are not to be conformed to the world, right? But transformed with the renewing of our minds. So he goes on with this in verse 2, back in Ephesians, or Romans 15. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So he goes on here and clarifies what he's talking about. Each of us. Paul is broadening this out to include all believers once again. The stronger and weaker believers, right? This should be the goal of everyone in the church. The concept is certainly universal for the church. We are all to desire what's best for one another, to do what is good for each other. When he says pleasing, again, it's not, it's not about making sure we're all happy, but it's making sure that what we do is right. And this would include what we saw in chapter 14, not hurting each other, not causing each other to stumble, not judging each other, not causing each other to, to sin or violate your own conscience. To his edification, and that word for edification is a word that means building up. And we saw this word back in verse 19 of chapter 14, where he said, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's edification. That's what that means. That's the same word. If I am strong, I do what is best for the weak in not causing them to stumble. If I am weak, I don't judge my stronger Brother, I don't use my weakness as a tool for control or manipulation. I don't see it as an opportunity to get people to do things my way. That's not doing it for their good. That's not doing it for their edification. If I do that, then I'm in that same boat of pleasing myself and not them. It works both ways in that situation. There's a fine line that we walk in this. How do I know if they're trying to control me? Right? Sometimes we go there. Sometimes we think that. When I have this dispute or this discussion or we, we have this situation, how do I know that they're not just trying to control or manipulate me? Do they really have that conviction or are they just trying to make things difficult for me? We might not know that. But you know what? That's not where our concern should be. I need to take care of what I'm responsible for and not what they're responsible for. For my part, I'm to do what's best for them. That's what I do. Whether or not they are reciprocating that attitude and doing what's best for me as well, that does not change my responsibility to them in any way. Remember what Paul said back in verse 12 of chapter 14. He said, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 
When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I will give an account of what I have done or what I have failed to do in my Christian walk. That's what I will do. That's what I will give an account of. I won't give an account of what you've done. You will do that. Right? I'm not going to be standing there and, and God's going to be asking me, okay, tell me about Jay. Tell me about Gordon. Tell me about the other people in your congregation. That's not what's going to happen. He's going to say, well, tell me about you. About the things that you did. About your responsibilities. I used to love it when my kids would fight. Actually, I didn't. I didn't love it when they'd fight. But they would fight, and you come into the room, and you break it up, and you ask them, okay. You ask one of them, okay, what did you do? And their response would be, well, he or she did this. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask what he or she did. I will ask he or she what they did. I'm asking you what you did. That's what it will be like for us. We won't give an account for our brother. They will give an account for themselves. That's not our responsibility. For our part, we do what pleases them. We do what edifies and builds them up. And we have an example to follow in this. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. And as always, here's our ultimate example, right? How did Christ do it? Look at the example of Christ. Christ did not come to please himself. He didn't come to earth simply to see what he could get out of it. He came to serve others. How was that ultimately manifested? By his death on the cross. Continue in the verse. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what this quote is about. Those that reproached or offended God, those who were enslaved to sin, it was their reproaches, their sins, which fell on Jesus at the cross. Jesus Christ bore your sins. He bore my sins on the cross. God's plan of salvation was to take our sins and pay the penalty for those sins on our behalf. This wasn't just Christ pleasing himself. He did what was necessary for our salvation. He did what was necessary to glorify and honor the Father. Here is the clear example, the example that we should be following, that Christ himself, our Lord, didn't please himself. Where do I get the idea that I can come into my Christian walk, having been raised with Christ to new life, and say, okay, now I can live my life just for me. How, now I can live my life just to please me. You know what? I'm glad that this was not Jesus' attitude. I think we all should be. I'm glad that he didn't have the attitude of, well, you know what? I don't think they have my best interest at heart. So why should I have their interest at heart? They aren't doing what's best for me. Why should I do what's best for them? You know what? We didn't have his best interest at heart. No one had his best interest at heart. We weren't doing anything for him. The world doesn't do what's best for God. And yet, he did what was best for us anyway. He sacrificed himself. He took our reproaches upon himself. Now, is it difficult for me to do what's best for my neighbor, my fellow Christian, without being too inconvenienced? Is that my attitude? Come over to Philippians chapter 2. 
second chapter of Philippians. Here in Philippians 2, we see this example once again. Start in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, this is exactly what we're talking about once again, looking out for each other's interests first, being intent on one purpose, having unity of mind in the church. And these things we should do. Why? Because of our example. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. He didn't please himself. He was doing the Father's will. He came to do what was best for us. Jesus functioned with his eyes focused on the vertical relationship with God the Father, focused solely where it should be, acting obedient to him. And based on that focus and that relationship, he did what was best for us. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what Paul has been saying that we should do? That's exactly what we should do in Romans 15. So back in Romans 15. In verse 3, that quote he says comes from a Psalm 69.9. And through this quote from Scripture, we have a knowledge of the plan of God. We see Christ as the example. And through Romans, Paul has been quoting from the Old Testament. And now Paul's going to expand on the importance of Scripture that that which has been written is used to nurture and develop his children. So look at verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance in the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now specifically what Paul has in mind here, he's, he, he brings this up based on his last quote, what was written about the reproaches of others, um, that Jesus bore was written for our benefit so that we know the example of Christ. But he broadens it out to include all scriptures written at the time, not just one quote. He's talking about scripture in general, right? That's what scripture is for. And again, many times throughout the book, we've seen these Old Testament quotes that he's made, bringing validity, right? Emphasis to the things that he's been talking about. Because scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now for us today, we understand the validity of the Old Testament, and there's, but there's no reason that we don't broaden it out further, right? What, what Paul is writing here in the New Testament as well is also part of the entire counsel of Scripture. It pertains to both. The entire Bible is our instruction. It's not just, it's not just a good book. It's not just good ideas or suggestions or I can get some tips on how to live. This book instructs us. 
It gives us knowledge on how we are to serve God. It gives us insight into his will, into what his desires are for us, into how we can best serve him in our lives. That's why studying the word of God is vital. It's so important. It's how we know what God wants. It's how he has communicated with us. And it's at the heart of God's plans for us, not just as a church, but as individuals as well. It was written to to instruct us. Throughout the scriptures, through the scriptures, we gain perseverance and encouragement, he says here. These come about through God's word, through our knowledge of the scriptures. Perseverance is a word that means endurance. The ability to bear up under pressure, under trials. How does God's word do that? Bible tells us in certain passages, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's talking about us. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for us. John 6, 37-39, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. We read these scriptures about the way that God eternally keeps those who belong to Him, keep His children. Now as His child, when I'm going through trials, I have confidence in knowing that I am secure. I belong to the living God who has chosen me to be a part of His family, who has redeemed me, justified me, sanctified me for Himself. With that knowledge, how can I not persevere? How can I not endure those trials? And that goes along with encouragement as well, right? This is, this is comfort, the joy and the peace that we get in our lives, knowing whom we belong to, knowing the peace that is possible for us. I belong to God, and He will keep me for all eternity. That's an encouragement to me. How can that not be an encouragement to me? I believe what God has written to me in His Word. I take comfort in knowing what His plan is for the church, that we will someday be with Him in glory. We gain these things through the Word of God. We, we gain these things through a knowledge of Scripture. There's a disturbing trend among churches today that they are moving away from the Bible as the main focus of their worship, the main focus of their instruction. Churches moving towards entertainment, towards 45 minutes of concerts and videos, and maybe a 15-minute Bible story if they can work it in. People are not getting fed the Word of God today. Then when these same people come under pressure, under trials, they need encouragement, what happens? They don't know what to do. Where do I go? Do they go to the Word? Probably not, because nobody's taught it to them. Because they haven't been taught the Word. They don't see the Bible as the place for serious answers. Instead, they seek out professionals. You know, the Bible is good for a story or two here and there on Sunday morning, but I need real help. You know what? God's Word is real. It is real. When we need instruction on how to get through a difficult situation, do we delve into the truths that God has revealed to us? Do the Word that equips us for every good work? Or do we run to men and the wisdom of men? This is God's instruction for us. This is what He wants us to know. All that we need to know to live godly lives is here in His Word. 
But too many Christians neglect it. Too many churches are starting to make it secondary. It is through the word and the perseverance and the encouragement, or that the perseverance and the encouragement that comes through it, that we might have hope, he says. And that's really a difference, a key difference between believer and unbeliever, right? As believers, we have hope. They have no hope. There is nothing for them to look forward to. They might as well live however they want to because it's not going to get any better for them. This is what we were all saved out of, especially the Gentile believers, right? When we talked in, about Ephesians 2 earlier, um, where if Paul said in Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Before salvation had come to the Gentiles, before it had been offered to the Gentiles, they had no hope, right? It wasn't offered to them. But now, by the blood of Christ, they have been brought near. We, I would hazard to guess that probably just about everyone in this room falls under the Gentile category. By the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. And all those who believe in him for their salvation now have hope. We know through the word of God that we have hope. We can go back to... Romans, actually, go back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. We talked about hope there. Starting in verse 18 of Romans 8, he was talking about this hope that we have. Verse 18 tells us that the glory that awaits makes our present trials and troubles insignificant. It's the glory that we are anxiously awaiting. That's where our hope lies. Come down to verse 24. He says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We have been saved in hope. We eagerly wait for what is to come. He'll go go on to say in Romans chapter 8 that we know that if we've been foreknown, We've been predestined. Predestined, we've been called. If called, then we've been justified. If justified, then we will be glorified. That is our hope. And how do we know it? Through God's Word. Right? He tells us right there in Romans chapter 8, through the Word of God, this is what He's revealed to us. So back in chapter 15, we come to verse 5. And we see just how important the scriptures really are because he says here, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And here in verses 5 and 6, Paul presents his first prayer for the Romans, his first wish or what he hopes for the Romans here. Where does this perseverance and encouragement come from? From God himself. And you say, but wait a minute, verse 4, I thought perseverance and encouragement came through the Scriptures. Here it says God gives us perseverance and encouragement. You see, the Scriptures are that important because that is God giving us those things. That's how He gives us our perseverance and encouragement. It's through God, through the Scriptures. From God, through the Scriptures. Sometimes we get caught with the attitude, I'm so discouraged, I can't take the pressure. Why won't God help me with these things? He already has. He's given us His Word. 
That's how he instructs us in these things. We oftentimes want God to, for lack of a better word, zap us in some way, right? Give us instant strength and peace of mind, and, and we don't realize that he's already made this possible. It's a process through the study of his word. As we study, we gain knowledge, we gain the tools to understand more about life and about how we are to respond and behave in our lives. It's not a quick fix, it's not a zap, it's a meticulous learning process and it's part of our ongoing sanctification. We understand how this works, we do. I'm sure just about every one of us here went to school at some point, right? In school I learned many things that I didn't know that you know, kids sit there, you hear them say in school, what am I going to do with this? Why am I learning this? I, I, what, how am I ever going to use this in my life? Usually math. People say, I'm never going to use math in my life. I'm never going to do this or that. But I learned math in school. I learned writing. I learned communication. I learned how to spell. You know what? Back then, I didn't know what I was going to do with those things. But all these things that I learned, I used them today in my life. Those were the basics, right? The ABCs. I didn't know exactly how they were going to apply later on. But now today, having learned them and using them, I see how it all fits together. That's what God has provided to us through his word. That's why we study all of the scripture. We study it all. Because we never know when God is going to give us a situation or bring us into a situation where we're going to need to recall back to something that we studied and we learned and used that in our lives. And he's already communicated that to us. It says, now may God grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. The same God that has given you perseverance and encouragement, may he grant you to be of the same mind. And this goes back to what we saw in Philippians 2 and we saw in Ephesians 4, having unity of mind in the body, being intent on one purpose. Unity in the church, just like he was saying back in verse 3, following the example of Christ, putting others ahead of ourselves. Doesn't mean that we always think alike on everything. We've already acknowledged that we have differing convictions, right? That's what this whole section's about. But it means that we are to be focused together and our purpose is to be unified. And, that, and what is that purpose? Verse 6. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's our purpose? To glorify God. To bring Him glory with one voice, one accord. This is unity. This is oneness in Christ. We are all working together towards the same goal. It's like a sports team, right? Or a, or a military unit, right? Both types of situations. They all play different roles, right? You take, you take a team and you've got offense, you've got defense, you've got this position, that position. They all do different things. They all have different focuses. They all have different responsibilities. But all in all, they're all looking to accomplish that same goal. Victory. Win a game. Win a championship. It's that same mentality that we are to have in the church. We need to work together. We accomplish different things. We have different objectives. But we need to put aside our selfish desires to make way for the one true purpose and not let our liberty get in the way of serving God. As I function as a child of God, and you function as a child of God, our goal should be 
to win others for Christ, and through that to bring glory and honor to God. I think it's okay to eat and drink something. And maybe you have a problem with that. Okay, I'll put that aside. What does that matter in the case of us working together to glorify God? Now let's focus on building one another up. Let's focus on spreading the gospel to this world and bringing glory and honor to our Lord. Whatever our convictions, whatever our backgrounds, we're to be unified in purpose. And that's where Paul goes in verse 7. He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Here's Paul's conclusion. As Christ accepted you for the purpose of bringing glory to God, accept one another for that same purpose. We already looked at the verses that show that this is the purpose of our salvation, right? We were God's enemies. He made us his children, all for his glory. This is why Christ saved us. Glorify God. That's what it's for. That's where our focus should be. And we, as we relate this to liberty, the, to the weaker and the stronger brothers accepting one another, look back at verse 6 of chapter 14, where he said, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is how we are to live, to function every day of our lives. We belong to God. We belong to the Lord. I live for the Lord. You live for the Lord. I have my convictions in order to please Him. You do the same. Now, forget how those differ. Accept one another. Let's bring glory to God as one body. Verse 8, Paul brings it home for the church in Rome. And this relates back to what we saw in Ephesians 2. He says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to to glorify God for his mercy. So here, Christ has become a servant. It's the servant's attitude that is to characterize us. But here, to whom is he a servant? Christ became a servant. He makes this all-encompassing. First of all, servant to the Jews, the circumcision. This is based on the promises given to the fathers. We talked about this back in Romans chapter 9. We've seen this pattern in Romans before. As God's chosen people, Israel was given the promises through the fathers. And through that came Christ offering salvation to them first of all. Remember way back, we haven't referred to it in a while, but way back, the beginning of our Roman study, Romans 1.16, right? It's our, it's our um, I can't think of the word. It's basically the, the verse that defines the entire letter. Verse 116, theme, sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. It's our theme verse, Romans 116, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was given to the Jew first, but not only to the Jews, which is where he continues in verse 9 here, and for the Gentiles to glorify God by showing mercy to those who were enemies, those who weren't even looking for God. Salvation came to the Gentiles. Remember, this was the major theme of, of chapters 9 through 11. 
and really throughout Romans, that although salvation was offered first to Israel, because of their sin, it also came to the Gentiles. And it's this situation that the Roman church was in, and the universal church is in today, comprised of both groups. There are Jew and Gentile in the church. Jesus' acceptance of both Jews and Gentiles were both seen in patterns of Scripture from before. The plan of God has always included both. There's always going to be both included in this. And we are to model this. We are to accept them as well. If God has chosen them and they are his servants, we should be willing to serve them as well. Now, once again, to emphasize his point, just like he mentioned before, Paul goes through a series of quotes from Scripture showing the inclusion of the Gentiles into the plan of God. And he continues in verse 9, and he goes through the next three or four verses here. He says, As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come to the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. The purpose of these quotes, they show the work and the glory of God, even offered to the Gentiles, or that it would come to the Gentiles. And you can jot down these references, we won't turn to them, but 2 Samuel 22.50, Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalm 117, verse 1, and Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10. And these are these quotes that he has here. And in the first three of them, they show the Gentiles praising the name of God, rejoicing in the Lord, right? Even back in the Old Testament, there was a time where it was revealed that they would praise the name of God. And this is only because of the relationship that is now possible through the blood of Christ, through salvation. In verse, 13, verse 12, we, saw, we see that he alluded uh, to before in Ephesians chapter 2, the hope that is now possible to the Gentiles. By bringing the Gentiles in with the Jews, God is glorified. The Gentiles have hope. They can now praise him along with the people of Israel. Now again, I'll emphasize, this does not mean that there's no distinction at all between Jew and Gentile. That there aren't plans for Jews and Gentiles that are different. We're not going to go into that discussion. We've done it before. But in salvation, Jews and Gentiles are now both given blessings and given salvation. This is what the purpose of Scripture is. This is what the purpose of creation is. We sometimes turn it around and think the main purpose of Scripture is the salvation of man. We think the main purpose of Scripture is to show how you and I can be saved. That's not what the main purpose of Scripture is. Mankind is saved, Jew or Gentile, so that God can be praised, so that He will be glorified. Paul demonstrated this back at the end of the doctrinal section, quote-unquote, of Romans um, in chapter 11. Turn back to Romans 11. Look at the last few verses, starting verse 30. Here he's given this conclusion to this section. And in verse 30 he says, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And here we were talking about the salvation of man, Jew and Gentile alike. 
And now it's, it's offered to both. Through faith in the gospel, Jew or Gentile can be saved. And now Paul goes on. God has provided the gift of salvation to be available to all. And now he ends the chapter with this. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Salvation has come to all men. Praise God. To him be the glory. The salvation of man, anyone who is saved, is all for the glory of God. Now back in chapter 15, verse 13. Paul concludes the main body of the letter to the, to the Romans here. In verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the next prayer of Paul for the Romans, his second wish for them, what he wants for them, that they would be filled with all joy and peace, not just on one occasion, but have its fullness within them. Having believed in his Son, coming to the point of saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, joy and peace can be a reality and should be a reality in our lives as believers. Just like perseverance and encouragement before, we have hope with our joy and our peace as His children. With the Spirit working in our lives, producing His fruit in us, we know that we have hope. We stand in hope of what's to come. That we are awaiting the day when we will spend all eternity with our Lord in glory. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we are able to make all these things that we have seen in the book of Romans a reality in our lives. We can live as we should. We can live lives of obedience to Him. We can live free from the power of sin. We can love one another. We can put our brothers and sisters in Christ ahead of ourselves, all for the purpose of glorifying and honoring God. This is the reality of being a believer in Jesus Christ. This is real. I take comfort knowing that I don't have to go to a thousand different books where people don't have to continue a pointless search for the perfect answers to all of life's questions, trying to uncover every philosophy of man that's out there in the world. I've got them right here. Through the Word of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives me truth or gives me insight into His truths, I don't have to keep searching for those things. Keep your focus on God, on His will, on what He wants for you here on earth and live for His glory. That's our purpose. That's what we're here for, to serve Him and ultimately to bring glory to Him. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You and we thank You, Lord, for another opportunity that we have to be in Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for this book. We thank You for uh, the Apostle Paul and the way that You used him to bring us these truths. And we pray, Lord, that as we study through Your Word, as we read through these things, that we would have a proper perspective on our lives here on earth. That we would know how to live, how to serve you, how to bring glory to you, Lord, in everything that we do. And that our focus would be on you. And that every relationship that we have here on earth, Lord, would be filtered through our 
understanding of our relationship with you. Pray, Lord, that you would just help us to know um, how we can live our lives, what we can do to glorify and honor you, Lord. And we pray that it would be a focus of ours to be in your word daily, to be reading your instructions to us, your word to us, your commandments to us, Lord, everything that you have for us here. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into that. And as we live our lives knowing that we are secure in you as your children, that we can live with that boldness and that confidence and encouragement, Lord, just living our lives to honor you in every step of the way. Pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we go into the next hour as well, as, as Josh brings us the word once again. We pray for understanding into your word once again. And pray, Lord, that we would be an encouragement to one another, that we would build each other up. And, Lord, that we would serve you in that way. And, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.